0: Well, this morning we're in the book of Isaiah together. That may come as a surprise to you, it may not. We're in the book of Isaiah and we're in chapter 55 today and we're going to look at the whole chapter. I'll just uh, tell you that as we get started, anytime today you see the number 12 on the screen, simply replace that with the number 13. <laughs> Why the number 12 was on my mind, I don't know, but it's we're, we're looking at the whole chapter. We didn't stop one verse short uh, and so we're, we're looking at the whole chapter together today, uh, which is 13 verses. And so we're going to take this just a little bit at a time, and what we're going to be looking at together are the provisions of God, the provisions of God. So let's just read the first two verses as we begin. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Okay, so we have here an invitation to come, an invitation to come. And, uh, What are we being invited to do? To come and partake of the provisions that God has, right? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Who's providing these waters? What appears as though God himself is providing these waters, right? Come, buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the kind of stuff we like to buy, this stuff that doesn't cost anything. But what's amazing here is that God is offering an invitation. He's extending an invitation to partake of the provisions that he gives and it doesn't cost you anything. That's amazing already, isn't it? That God would extend an invitation to people undeserving who are thirsty and needy and hungry and don't have what they need to get the provisions that they need to sustain themselves. And he's not only saying, come and just get water, but he's saying, come and get milk and wine. And it's actually it's going to get better than that. But what he's saying is, I'm not just going to sustain you. I'm going to abundantly provide you with all the provisions that I have. That's pretty amazing already, isn't it? So you might say, I am thirsty. I am hungry. Some of you in this room literally know what it is to be hungry and thirsty and not have what you need to sustain your physical life. And that can be very difficult, very difficult. But what he's saying here is that there are people who are in a way thirsty and hungry and they can do nothing in and of themselves to get what they truly need to sustain themselves. You see, we're thinking about terms in a physical life here. But God, as we already know, is not simply thinking in terms that we think, is he? But God is thinking on a whole nother level here. He's thinking, I don't simply want to give you what you need to sustain your physical life. It's not what I have in mind. Now, does God do that as well? Certainly he does. But what does God have in mind here? A bigger picture that I'm going to provide you with what you need for true life. And the only place to get these provisions is from me. So I'm going to provide you. I have things to offer. So God is going to do this and he's going to sustain life. Yes, he's going to abundantly satisfy. Look at verse two. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? It's funny because you could, you could definitely take this verse out of context. Put it on your refrigerator. God told me to eat, buy bread. He told me to eat bread. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? God said, buy bread. I'm going to buy bread and I'm going to eat it. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Right. Listen to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Now, if we could, we, we could take that out of context and we say, God told me to eat whatever I want, whatever satisfies me, rich food. He wants me to buy the best stuff. And so, but what is God really talking about here? What he's specifically talking about is that you're working and you are laboring, right? And you're buying things. That's true. All all this is true. But the things that we end up buying that we think is going to satisfy and sustain us, guess what? It doesn't sustain us. It doesn't end up working. And if we labor with our whole lives buying these things that don't truly produce life, guess what's going to happen? you're not going to have life, right? So God is saying, come everyone who thirsts, come everyone who's hungry, and I will give you not only what you need to just satisfy you, sustain you, I mean, but what is going to abundantly satisfy you completely. I have what you need, and yet here you are working your life away, and nothing is being added to you at all. God wants us to come to him and satisfy all our desires that we might need in him. So there's a really simple application here. I think we all understand it, but let's just say it. We, especially in our culture, do we not many times live to work so that we can have the things that we think will give us the life that we think we want? We live to work in the sense that we try to get as much money as possible to get the things that we think that we want that might sustain us and give us a good life, the kind of life that we want. And in the end, we find that these things, isn't it true? These things that you have pursued, that we all have, we all have done this, the things that we have pursued do not truly satisfy us. We find ourselves over and over wanting Have you worked very hard? It could be even for decades. It could be for whatever it may be. You worked hard and you finally got that thing you thought was the end goal. You finally arrived and wouldn't you know it, what happens? That thing isn't doing it for you either. Because no matter what you have in this life, no matter what you have, no matter how much you have, no matter how little you have, do you know that these things of the earth, in the realest way that we can say it, None of this is ever going to satisfy you. It will not satisfy me. It will not satisfy you. There is nothing that can satisfy. Didn't Jesus say this? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. True, but what did they hunger and thirst for? Righteousness. So you, th- you see there, there, there's not an actual promise That we hunger and we thirst for, you insert what you hunger and thirst for, right? That option is not available to us, is it? I hunger and thirst for, and then we insert whatever we're praying for right now. I hunger and thirst for this house over here. Thank you very much, please. I I hunger and thirst for this car or this position or this whatever it may be. We insert things into that thing that we hunger and thirst for, and then we assume on God's provision that he's going to actually give what we're desiring. But God did not promise to give you that thing. He said, For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. So all of your hunger and thirst for righteousness is fully and abundantly satisfied in God Himself. And so we often find ourselves disappointed when the things that we hunger and thirst for that we're not being satisfied, and then we turn and we blame God, say, why aren't you satisfying the desires that I have? And you say, maybe you're desiring the wrong thing. Maybe the thing that you're actually desiring is not righteousness, but is something else. And so you find yourself unsatisfied. We find ourselves unsatisfied. So what we have in verses 1 and 2 is an invitation an invitation to come and partake of God's provisions. What a wonderful invitation, right? What a wonderful God who would offer us such free provisions. And it's not just what can get us by here on earth, but God is offering far more to us than something that can simply get us by, isn't he? So next, in verses 3 through 5, what we're going to find is an explanation of these provisions that God has to offer. So in verses 1 and 2, we have this great invitation in verses 3 through 5, there's going to be an explanation of all these provisions that God is giving. So let's look at that, verses 3 through 5. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. See, we've already, we've already got, to, God has something greater in mind, doesn't he? Come in here and c- come to me and drink and be satisfied. Why? What is this going to produce? That your soul may live? It's going to produce spiritual life. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Verse 4, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Let's see this in three different parts here. First, in the first part of verse 3, we have the contents of the provisions. What these provisions actually are, the contents of these provisions. What are the contents of God's provisions? Well, he says, when you come to me and you hear and you have what I have to offer, what do you get? Life for your soul, spiritual life. As we understand when Jesus tells us, what is this? Everlasting life, eternal life, life that doesn't end because God is the one who has created it. He is the one who is sustaining it. He is the one that is giving you everything you need to have life. So it's not physical life. We have to make that distinction. God isn't saying, come to me and you will never die, or you will always have the food that you need in that sense. And as I've said before, and we have to recognize, has there ever been a true, genuine believer who has died of hunger? Has that ever happened? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. So is the promise that God will always give us the food that we need to live? That's not the promise, is it? But what has God promised is far better. God has promised that although your body dies, you will have life forever, a life that God gives and creates and sustains. So there is material food that sustains physical material life. But what does that automatically make us think? That there is spiritual food that sustains the spiritual life that we have. So we're, we're headed down a good road here, aren't we? So we have physical life. We have spiritual life. We have physical food. We have spiritual food. Where does the physical food come from? Where does the spiritual food come from? What is God doing to sustain and give this life? Right now, he's, they're basically, uh, th- this. well, the first half of this verse is really telling us what this is. Um, let me just read for you. John 6. This is John six twenty six. Just listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, this is, this is making that distinction between physical food and spiritual food, okay? Now, Jesus just fed the 5,000, the masses. Even though there was more than 5,000 people, we call it the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 men. And so Jesus just did that miraculous feeding with physical food, right? And then Jesus turned and he said to them, you are seeking me Not because you saw signs, but because you ate food. You ate your fill of the loaves that I made. That's why you like me. That's why you've come to me. is because you think that I will sustain your physical life with food. So what he's saying already is, do not think that just because you come to me, that all I have to offer is physical food to sustain your life. And then in verse 27 it says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And so then they said to him, so what must we be doing to do the works of God? So in other words, you work to buy physical food, material food. They're saying, okay, so that's not what we want here. So what can we be doing to be doing the works of God that we might receive in return spiritual food, right? You work for physical food and you get it. How do I work for that spiritual food? And so here's what he says. This is the answer. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Is that as simple as it is? That you believe and you are given just enough that will satisfy your soul or that will sustain your soul. I keep mixing those words up and it takes the power away from the sentence, doesn't it? Just enough to sustain you. No, he gives everything to actually satisfy you completely. Abundantly, he satisfies. How? By simply believing. It's amazing. So, back in Isaiah 55, look at the second half of verse 3. So, that's the contents of God's provisions, is that it's for spiritual life. What is the basis for God's provisions? That's next. That is, why has God given this to us? Why has God decided to give us provisions for spiritual life? Is it because we're good people? Is it because we deserve it? What? He's going to tell us. What is it for? Why has he chosen to give us these provisions? Here it is in the second half of verse 3. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. That's why. You might say, okay, what what does David have to do with this situation? What does David have to do with this situation? Well, God made a promise to David, didn't he? God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. I referenced this, I believe, last week. I'm actually going to read it this, this week. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. I'm going to read this. Let's keep in mind the reason I'm reading this is because it was just said to us in Isaiah 55 that the reason that God is extending these free provisions is because of his love for David. Okay? So, what about this love for David? 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your own body, And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. I'm going to read that part again. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. That is the previous king of Israel and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So there is a coming king coming from the line of David who will sit on the throne of David, who will have God's steadfast love forever. And it all stems from this agreement there with David. So God's love for David Turned into a love for the one who would come from the line of David and that would sit on David's throne. And that king would have a kingdom that was established permanently and forever, and God's love would never leave him. And it's based on that love that God is giving his provisions. Now, who is that king? It is King Jesus, of course. And so, because God loved Jesus from the line of David who sits on David's throne, Jesus does what? He pulls us in and adopts us into his family and gives us all the blessings that are his and he shares them with us freely. So the love that God had for David is the love God has for David's son, who is eventually Jesus. Jesus gets the full love of God. Jesus then gives us that love. And because of that love, what do we get? The provisions of God, eternal life. All that makes sense? This is how it comes to us. Why did God give us these things? Because of him, not because of you. Because of his promises, not because of your goodness. Because of everything that he is and that he has done, and nothing that you have done, and nothing about who you are. It is everything about God. God said he was going to do it. God did it. Here it is. So it is on the basis of God that he does this. And now we can just follow this through history. He said, I promised David. I promised David. And then here it is, and it came to Christ, and we can look back and see it now. Do you know at this particular time, David, so David lived from 1010 to 970. Is that right? That's not right because he was 30 years old. 1040 to 970. David lived from 1040 to 970. And uh, he ruled for 40 years, so he was 30 years when he became king of Israel, ruled for 40 years, and then he died. And that was 200 years before Isaiah wrote this. And he's talking about David. David's dead. But God's promise did not die with David. God's promise was realized in Christ. Okay? So, what is the basis for God giving us these provisions? His love. His love specifically for David, his love for Christ. Christ and the love that he shares with us in Christ. So is it very important that you find yourself in Christ? Is it very important that you find yourself tucked away in him? Because only in Christ do you have the blessings and the love of God and his provisions and eternal life. Okay. So let's look at verses 4 and 5 now. So we have the contents, we have the basis, and now we have the extent of these provisions. That is the people that would be able to partake of these provisions. Who is this for? Who is the come everyone or anyone? Who's that? Any and all people? Anyone? Anywhere? Who? Who is this for? Is this for me? Was this for them? Is it still valid today? Who is? Who are the provisions for? So that's what verses four and five answer for us if we look at it together. Behold, I made him a witness to the people's a leader and commander for the peoples. Now, that's a reference back to David. Remember, David was king of Israel for 40 years. So was he a leader of the people? Was he a commander of the people? Yes. With that in mind, go to verse 5, and it says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. Just let us pause right there. Here's what's interesting about this passage is that all the yous, Y-O-U, all the yous in this are in the plural with a, a, so it's a group context. So you would be you, right? Except for verse five. Verse five, all the yous are singular. In verse five, it says, behold, you shall call a nation. So it's not talking to the group, the come all, that group. No, this is talking to some, some, something else, someone else. You shall call a nation that you do not know, a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So now, it's speaking to an individual, to an individual who will be glorified, exalted, and of course, who is that? You remember Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. Who is this glorified figure that is from the line of David? Well, of course, it's Jesus Christ himself. The suffering servant of Isaiah is Jesus Christ. So verse 5 is directly speaking to the one who is to come, to the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself. You shall call a nation you don't know, and a nation that did not know you is going to run to you because of the Lord your God. So who is this for? As we bring all the context from Isaiah together, this was opening it up to the nations, right? To the nations. Which nations? Any nations in particular? Or all the nations? All. So, who is this for? What is the extent of this? To all the nations. The nations are going to flock to this one. Why do they flock? Because they're hungry and they're thirsty. And they see that he is the one who can satisfy. Isn't that the ones? Aren't those the ones who flock to the Savior? The ones who realize they are in need of saving? These are the ones who run after him to be satisfied knowing that they are not satisfied. They run after Christ because they are thirsty and they're hungry and they know that I will never be satisfied apart from him. He is what I need. So those who run to him are those who find themselves hungry and needy and poor because we have nothing to offer. So thank God that his provisions are free. You do not need money for these provisions. we thankful for that. Verses uh, 6 through 13 here. We need to, uh, these are going to be the results of God's provisions, and it takes a few verses here to get to this, but... Here's what verses 6 through 13 have to offer us. So God's provisions, there's an invitation to come and and partake of them, right? And then in this second part, we have an explanation of all these provisions. But then in this last part, we have the results of those who do partake of the provisions, okay? So there's an invitation, an explanation, and now they say, well, whoever then actually comes and eats and drinks, here's what's going to happen. So let's look at it, verses 6. First of all, let's look at verses 6 through 9, okay? Let's read it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, that's probably a passage that you're pretty familiar with, isn't it? We've heard these words before. What do they mean within the context of God's provisions? Because that's how we should primarily understand them, is what is actually being said? So seek the Lord, there's another invitation, and call upon Him, seek Him, call upon Him, I had to pause right here because isn't there a kind of a lingering, unanswered question here? Is that, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let's just ask the question, is there a time when God cannot be found? And is there a time when God is not near? The text says, seek the Lord while he may be found, implying what? That there could potentially be a time when he is not found. So time is limited. Call upon him while he is near. What's the implication there? That there may be a time when God is not near. So there is a a warning in a sense, right? You better do it while he's near, while he's here, while he can be found. When is the right time to call on the Lord? 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We live, as we talked about last week, in the last days where there is free access to salvation, right? Now is the time. Today is the day. I just want to plead with you in this moment that if you have never, if you have never truly in faith called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day to do that. You do not know what tomorrow holds. To that we can all say, I know that for sure. I'll tell you, I can tell you stories about my week if you want. Some of you already heard, had an ear full of them. But we never know what the next day has to hold, do we? Do you know for sure that tomorrow is yours? It's awfully prideful thinking that you have tomorrow. You don't know that you have tomorrow. None of us does. It is only by the grace of God that we are here breathing today. I don't deserve the breath that I breathe, but by the grace of God, He has given it. And at any time in His grace, He can take it away and I will be done. My time will be over. That is true for all of us. At any time when the Lord decides is the right time, your time will be up. So seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Now, you, you hear me saying this that this is not just a call for the unbelieving, this is a call for the believer. Seek the Lord today because you don't know what you have left. Seek Him today. What are you waiting for to seek the Lord with all that you have, with all of your life, with everything that you are? Seek the Lord. Why are you waiting? waiting until things get tied up or, you know, get that situation cleared up, and then I'll have a freedom in my calendar to, you know, do godly type things. Maybe I'll wait till this project is completed, or maybe I'll wait till, I, you know, whatever, school's over, work's over, whatever it may be, you know, retirement sounds like a good time to seek the Lord. I don't, when are we going to seek the Lord? When is the right time to seek Him? Now. And should you find things in your path that are prohibiting you? It may be time for those things to go. Or maybe a time to rearrange priorities so that you may, with a full heart, seek the Lord. If you leave today hearing anything other than you need to seek the Lord today, whether believer or not, then you've heard something that I'm not saying. Right? Seek the Lord today, now, How do you seek the Lord, by the way? And how do you call upon him? You say, I want to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Well, I want to seek the Lord. How do you do that? How does one go about seeking the Lord? I don't know where to look for him. How do I call upon him? What is his name? All these things come together, don't they? Jeremiah 29, 13 You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Do you know that God wants all of you? Did you know that? Could it be possibly that we have not given all of our heart to the Lord, but only a portion? And so we are not finding full satisfaction in all he has to offer, are we? Because part of our heart is here, part of our heart is there, and so we're not being fully satisfied by all the provisions God has to offer in Christ Jesus. And so our life is very divided, isn't it? Seek after him, how? With all of your heart's affections. You remember when we read last week in Acts 2? And uh, let me just recall some of these words, okay? Okay. So when they heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. You remember that? And what did they say? What should we do? How do we make things right? How do we seek after the Lord? And here are the words that Peter said. Repent and be baptized. And then we, we talked about that, right? What's the first thing he says to do when you want to seek after the Lord? Repent. You want to seek the Lord? Then repent. Repent. That's what I'm supposed to do. Give all of my heart to him and repent of my sin. Yes. I want to show you that in Isaiah 55 as well. Verse 7. We left off in verse 6, didn't we? Look at what verse 7 says. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon him. What should you do when you want to seek the Lord? Forsake your way. What is an understanding we have of that in the New Testament? We repent. We repent of our sins. You want to seek out the Lord. Repent of your sins. How do I know what my sins are? That's probably another good question, isn't it? Do you think you've possibly ever repented of a sin that wasn't actually sinful? That's a weird thing to think about. Why did I even just say that? It's just, I, Lord, I don't, even, I don't even know what I just did here, but I have a feeling that I just did something sinful. Maybe is that a thought that you've had? I don't even know how I'm sinning here, but I know that my heart is not right before the Lord. Do you know that David felt this way as well? And he said, Lord, reveal to me my secret sins because I know they're there. And I don't even know what they are exactly, but Lord, reveal them to me because I want to seek you with my whole heart but there are things even hidden to me that I don't fully grasp and understand and I want them to be revealed to me so that I might repent of them so that I might seek you out with everything that I have. So it's good for us that the scriptures are given to us. We're gonna get into that in just a second here, but we need to know fully what are our sins, what are those things keeping us back from giving all of our heart's devotion to him to repent of those things and to seek him out. Okay? This is a continual work for the believer, that we're continually working the ground of our heart to see what's in there, right? You know what you do with the ground? I don't know. I'm not a farmer. Isn't that what you do? Don't you continually work the ground and you make it to where things can grow? And then when you see little things pop up that shouldn't be there, what do you do with them? You, you get them out. But how do you do that without tending the ground? You don't just plant it and walk away, do you? but you actually care for it. And should there be things there? But what does that take? It takes an eye looking, doesn't it? You have to get down there and see what all is there and take out what shouldn't be there. Now, at the same time, we, uh, we also understand it's not us doing this work. It is God doing this work. But yet, there is that uncomfortable place of that God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And yes, those things work together properly. But we look, this is, this is good, this is right, that we look at our lives, we see what's there. And that as we see the sin in our lives, what do we do with it? We don't leave it. We take it out. We forsake that way. We repent of those sins. And this is how we seek out the Lord. By repenting of our sins. So what are we seeing here? That there is transformation that takes place. Transformation takes place in the life of a believer. That is the life of someone who has taken of God's provisions. If you were at the, the picnic fellowship thing that we had yesterday, what's it called? Picnic, I guess. Sure, we'll call it a picnic. The gathering. What, if you were at this thing yesterday, you ate some food that you probably shouldn't have. Everybody agree with that? You ate some food you probably shouldn't have, and your body knows it. And if you should live on a diet like that, your body knows it. And what will happen to your body? It will transform to be like what you're consuming. Would everyone agree? Now, in the same way, do you know that your spiritual intake also transforms you and you will begin to resemble the food you're consuming? In the same way, there is a parallel to be found. We need to be very careful of our intake. Now, both physically, shouldn't we care for our bodies and be concerned with our physical intake? How much more so then should we be concerned with our spiritual intake? We should be very concerned for our spiritual intake and we will be transformed by the spirit of God. So as we eat of God's provisions, as we eat of all he has to offer continually, guess what's gonna happen? Transformation will take place in our lives. As you seek him out in repentance of sin you will be transformed in your life. And guess what else is found? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is also found. We see that also in our text. It says, as you forsake your way and we return to the Lord, the Lord will have compassion on him and he will abundantly pardon. He will have compassion and he will abundantly pardon. So what could happen as we're tilling the ground of our lives and we're recognizing that there are things there that shouldn't be there, we may feel overwhelmed with the amount of things that shouldn't be there. And we may think that you're undeserving of God's provisions, right? That could happen. But as we reveal, these things are revealed to us that shouldn't be there and God sees them, God already knows them, What does he do with those things? He has compassion on you and he forgives those things. Those things should not be there and you should forsake your way. You should repent of your sins. You should be doing that. But as they're revealed to us and they weigh heavy on us, God forgives us of those things. Thank God for his forgiveness because every day we find new things, don't we? I thought it was all clear. And isn't that just how a garden works? I told you I'm not a gardener. I can't grow a thing. It's out of control. And that's kind of how our lives are at times, isn't it? There's too many things. It's out of control. It's not out of control because you are actually in God's hands. Did you know that? You are actually in God's hands and God is the one actually doing the work. He is actually the one revealing to you where your faults are where your sins are, and God will sanctify you, and He will bring you into glory. He is doing the work of cleansing you. He is doing the work of sanctifying you. He is doing the work of revealing sin to you, and this is not a pleasant process. If you didn't know, doing a garden is dirty, messy. How much more so sinful lives dirty, messy work, but yet there is fruit that is coming, and it is abundant fruit that comes from this work. Abundant fruit. So we should not get to a place to where we're discouraged in our hearts because we find sin in our lives, but rather we should be encouraged because we know that wherever we find sin, what do we also find? The compassion and the forgiveness of God for that sin in Jesus' name this is all good news. This is all very good news. Okay, so we have then, as a result of God's provisions, we have transformation that takes place, and then we also have forgiveness that takes place. This is good. Okay, but there's more. Look at verses 10 through 13. Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't even finish that, did we? Let's probably finish that out. So 6 through 9, Sorry, I apologize. What does it say here? It says, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So all this ties together. God has thoughts, and you have thoughts. God has ways about him, and you have ways about you. Now, God's ways are far higher than our ways, his, ha- his thoughts far higher than our thoughts, and this is exactly what Sam was bringing to our attention earlier about this gap that exists between us and our God. So we have our thoughts, and we have our ways, and God wants us to forsake those thoughts and those ways. That's what he wants for us, This is where the repentance and the transformation and the forgiveness is all taking place is that as we realize our own thoughts and our own ways that we forsake those ways and we turn to him and embrace his thoughts and his ways. That's what God wants from us. Forsake all those things that were not of God and embrace all those things that are of God. Embrace his ways, embrace his thoughts but what that necessarily takes is a forsaking of your own thoughts and your own ways. We must do both. We can't just add what God has and keep thinking the same things we always think and keep doing the same things we always do. No, no. It takes a forsaking of all those things first and emptying, right? And then we add. We give God, we, we take God's word, we take God's ways, and this is how we live. So it's a replacement. It's a replacement of things that must happen in order for there to be true uh, transformation taking place, okay? Okay. So, verses 10 through 13 now, let's look at that. For, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills go before you. They break forth into singing. All the trees of the field, they clap their hands. And instead of thorns shall come up the cypress. And instead of the briar will come up the myrtle. And it will make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Okay, so what we have here is that the provisions of God are found where? The provisions of God are found in his word. So this whole section, this last section that we're reading is specifically talking about the growth and satisfaction that occurs for those people who are partaking of God's provisions. So when you take of what God has to offer, His uh, water, His food, you can absolutely be certain that growth and satisfaction will occur. Growth and satisfaction are going uh, going to occur, but we have to ask, where are these provisions found that I might eat them? right? We know to seek the Lord is to repent of our sins, to forsake our ways, forsake our thoughts, but where do I actually go to get fed? This is a good question. You should be wondering about this question. I know that we already, we we have inklings about where this is going in in the text, right? Because we know the answer to this, but we can solidify it with the word itself because it says, for uh, as the rain, the snow, they come down from heaven. They don't return there. Now, That's profound because actually they do if you know anything about the water cycle. Right? But what's the point? Is that as these things take place that it doesn't return void. It doesn't return empty. It's actually doing what it should do so that when the rain comes, when the snow comes, what actually is happening? That it's watering the earth so that what can occur? Growth. And he says... Uh, It gives seed to the sower. Why? Because seed was able to grow from the ground. And you can eat it. And it gives bread to the eater. You know you need water in order to eat bread. And remember, bread's a good thing. He just said that earlier. So what about all this food? And what about all this water? What does all this have to do? And he says, he explains in verse 11, so shall my word be. So there's been a replacement of the snow and the rain uh, with God's word. So he says, picture this. It's like I'm sending my word out. And it's falling on the ground. Do you really think that my word is not going to produce growth? Absolutely not. God's word must produce growth. In fact, he says, it will accomplish that thing for which I sent it. So when my word goes forth, it's going to produce growth. It's going to produce growth. It must so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It's not going to return to me empty. It's going to accomplish that pur- purpose for which I sent it, and it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is good. Just quickly here, when we say the word of God, what do we mean? When this says, when my word goes out, you've got to remember that Isaiah was not a compiled work at the time. So was the book of Isaiah in mind when it said the word? No, the book of Isaiah didn't exist. So, what is the word? Well, in the end, we can look back and say, yes, actually, it does refer to Isaiah, and that's okay to think that way. That's proper, because as the word is understood in the New Testament, the word of God is called also Isaiah. The word that came from Isaiah is the word of God. So this is the word of God. The scriptures are the word of God. And this is one primary way that we have to understand the word of God. So God's word goes forth. What word? The very word of God goes forth. And it will not return to him empty. Whole point of this is what? Something you already know, but something our text is saying. If you want spiritual food and growth, where do you go? To the word. This is something we have to understand. This is something that we cannot forsake. Why? Because we want God's thoughts, not our thoughts. We want God's ways, not our ways. How do you get all that? By going to the Word. So should we be, as we gather together, Word-focused? Should our songs be Word-focused? Should our fellowship be based on God's ways and God's thoughts and not our own ways and our own thoughts? When our fellowship and our relationships begin to be about our thoughts and our ways, what a disaster we have created. So we need to be very careful that our fellowship and our relationships with one another are based on the word, are based on God's thoughts, are based on God's ways. And when they're not, just as God offers forgiveness, what should you be offering to other people? Forgiveness. Otherwise, you have forsaken the ways of God. If you are not willing to forgive. You have forsaken the ways of God, and you have inserted your own ways, and you're, you've not forsaken them yet. So we must embrace then. Isn't that what the New Testament tells us on repeat, by the way? Be forgiving of one another. Why do we need to be forgiving of one another? Because we're all broken, because we're all sinful, and we're all going through this process together of figuring out where these faults are, and we find them, and we say, oh, and we, we ask for forgiveness, and that is what the people of God ought to be doing with one another asking for forgiveness, and then giving forgiveness. This is where we should be. So, in other words, we should be seeking out the Word of God in the Scriptures for our diet. We must have it. You want to seek the Lord? Repent of your sins. You want to be satisfied in what He has to offer? Then get in His Word. Did you know that, uh, some of you did, that I was, I was never a reader, a reader? I was a very, very, very poor, well, poor in multiple ways, but I was also a poor learner. I was a poor student. I never read, I never did homework, I never studied, and I'm not talking about just when I was a child. I was a very poor student, I did not like to read. I only read one book all the way through my entire high school career, all the way up through high school, one book, one book want know what book it was it may surprise you huh F- no fahrenheit 451 for whatever reason this dystopian novel right like caught my attention i don't know why i actually read it yeah but i i i despised reading i just wanted the tv that's what i wanted i wanted my mind to be entertained i wanted my mind to be at ease i wanted to relax i didn't want to be messing with any of this reading stuff until the Lord began to open my heart and my mind to see that all I was trying to be satisfied with was being lazy, I found true satisfaction for my soul in his word. And I just want to encourage you, if that you're in a particular time in your life where you are finding yourself discouraged and not satisfied, please go to the word of God. Please, I promise you, There is satisfaction to be found in the ways of God and the thoughts of God and the revelation of who He is, okay? But the other way that we go to God, and of course this is true, is that not only is the Word of God the Scriptures, but the Word of God is also what? The Son of God. He Himself is the Word of God. Did you know that? What does it say in John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And who is that? Jesus. That's the way he begins his gospel, and the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. You want satisfaction for your soul, then go to the word. Go to the son. Go to the scriptures. This is what we need, and there will be growth and satisfaction. Where are those provisions found? In the word of God. Go to him. Go to him to find these provisions, okay? Next, well, before, before, we, before we continue, let me just read just really quickly. Just remember, you remember that Jesus said this, John 7, 37 through 39. Listen to what he said. On the last day of the feast, he stood up, at Jesus, and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Isn't that amazing? You think Jesus was familiar with Isaiah 55? I think he probably was. Pretty good, right? All right, last, last thing here this morning is this. Um, the results of God's provisions, do you know that these results are produced by his spirit? So not only are there provisions found in his word, that's true, but the results of all of this that happened, they're produced by his spirit. And it says here, look at verses 12 and 13 with me. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And listen to what will happen. This is an amazing scene, the picture. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing. What a picture. And all the trees of the field, they're going to clap their hands. And instead of the thorn is going to come up the cypress. That's a good thing, right? Instead of a thorn, you've got a cypress tree. Instead of briar, you have a myrtle tree. This is all good. And it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, these things that are produced. Become an everlasting sign. There it is. And so remember, those signs do what? Signify something. That's what a sign does, after all. Okay, so what's being said here exactly? Now, while there is a reference and a throwback here, just if you're a, a note taker, write down Isaiah 44, 1 through 5, because there is certainly a reference back to Isaiah 44, 1 through 5 um, in the pouring out of the Spirit. Okay? But I want to take us, just in our last few moments here, over to the New Testament and and hopefully let you leave with some more application, okay? What is being said here? God has provisions to offer. He's telling us to come and take those provisions. We know why, for his love for David, which came through Christ, and then we know that God has forgiveness to offer, He has abundance to offer, He has satisfaction to offer, He has growth to offer, of course He has eternal life, that's the end of all these things. Okay, all this is true, but all this is produced by His Spirit. And I just want to show you how the New Testament authors make some reference to this reality as we close, okay? It says in Romans fourteen seventeen, for example, Romans fourteen seventeen for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, what did it say here in verse 12 of Isaiah 55? You shall go out in what? In joy and peace. Peace and joy are the results of those who are partaking of God's provisions. Peace and joy. Do you have true peace? Do you have true joy? And are there times in your life, genuinely speaking, just transparently, we are not quite in tune with the peace and joy that are yours freely given by God? Can we admit that that may be the case at times? And this is why the New Testament authors actually pray for them that all the peace that is theirs might be known, all the joy that is theirs might be experienced. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope... See, this is a prayer. Do you hear it? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Where did this joy and peace come from? From the Holy Spirit. Last place we'll go, so I'm just going to ask you to turn to this one with me this morning. Okay? Galatians 5. Let's all turn there together. Galatians 5 looking at verse 16. So here's, I believe, where we find this balance that we, many of us are seasoned believers in the room, okay? Some of you not. Some of you looking at it from the outside in, that's okay. We all need to see this. There are times in the believer's life where we are caught in the balance between partaking of God's provisions, having his thoughts and his ways, and we are left with the reality that we are many times forsaking the ways of God and and embracing our own ways, having our own thoughts, and so therefore what's being produced is not spiritual fruit, but it's something else altogether. And we're caught in that balance. And what a hard place that is to be and to live. So, we have these words in Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is, be doing the things of God, be thinking the thoughts of God by the power of God. That's what this is meaning. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, and they keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you feel that? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. So if you wanted a list of some of the things that you ought to be finding, as you work the ground of your life, and you find these things, what what kind of things should I be looking for? Well, here's some great big categories For you to be looking in your life and saying, is there sin to be found there? Here are some. Sexual immorality. Are you digging your life in the world of sexual sins? Are there any to be found there? They need to go. Impurity of any kind. Sensuality. Idolatry. What, What big categories of sins these are, right? Sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy. Yes, jealousy is in here in the same types of categories as sexual immorality, right? Idolatry. Are Are you jealous? That needs to go. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, let me just explain what that does not mean. Because you might say, well, I had a fit of anger yesterday. Does that mean I will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is that what it means? Because that would be contrary to what we found in Isaiah 55 and many other places that God has abundant forgiveness to offer, right? So if you as a believer have a fit of anger, is God able and willing to forgive that in Jesus' name? Without a doubt, yes, he will forgive, But you should be forsaking that. And if you are regularly not forsaking the sin you know is present, that is an indication that the kingdom of God is not yours because the Spirit of God is not at work in you. So it's an indication. It's not saying, here's how you get the kingdom of God taken away. It's saying, here's how you know that the kingdom of God is not yours to begin with. Is that you do all of these things and you don't forsake them right? Okay, so let's talk about the positive things, and this is where we're going to end. So what should my life look like then? And this is when we have a conversation about the fruit of the Spirit in our life. So we have God's provisions, God's Spirit is working in us, and it's producing things, right? What kind of things? What kind of things, as you're eating and feasting on God Himself and His Word, what things should be produced in your life? Here it is, The fruit of the Spirit is love. And look at the next two things, by the way. Joy and peace. Does that sound... Does a joyful, peaceful person who has peace in their heart... Does that sound like a satisfied person, by the way? And you're not just satisfied getting by, are you? No, you have more than anything. You have more. You have abundance. You have rich food to feast on. And so I'm joyful all day long because of the provisions God has given right? I have true peace in my heart knowing that God has given me more than everything, more than anything I could ever want. So I have peace and I have joy and I have love. Why? Because God has loved me and he has transformed my heart to not be a bitter, angry person anymore, but to be a loving person. But it continues. That's not it. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and, passions and desires. Right? That's the forsaking of our way, isn't it? The crucif... Killing them. Killing those things. So that I might live to God and think His thoughts and do His ways. How? How, does, how is all this possible? By His Spirit at work. And how do you get the Spirit? through the one whom God loved, who is Jesus Christ. So if you believe in Jesus, he sends his spirit to live in you, and you begin to find that you are a sinful person. And you take these things, you forsake them, and you find forgiveness, right? And you begin producing fruit because you're feasting on the provisions of God. Is your life lacking fruit? Then seek him, seek him while he may be found right? Repent of your sins, forsake your ways, feast on God. Let's pray together.